Good morning, Nava family. I'm here with my dear friend, Lisa Coons. Lisa, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to share with us this morning. Oh, I'm super excited to be here with the Nava community today. Well, uh, we are so happy to have you. You are a dear friend to me, uh, but you're also a, a friend who does marvelous deeds. You're the uh, prayer leader for our national 24-7 Prayer USA team. You're a wife, you're a mother, you're a practitioner, and really a faithful guide on the journey. And uh, you've personally been instructive in my journey with the Lord. Um, Nava, you know that we're on a long patient journey called the Micah 6-8 journey. It's a journey of learning and formation uh, that we can participate in the kingdom work, the gospel work, Jesus's work of racial healing and justice and reconciliation. And this is a prayerful work of dependence and repentance. We need the Holy Spirit. It's a patient work of listening and not being deflective or defensive as we go. It's hard work of learning, and a lot of us are there right now learning a history maybe we never were taught before. It's a deep work of lament, of truly stepping into compassion and suffering with those who suffer and feeling this deeply, and it's really a long work of love and justice. And uh, Lisa, who will share with us this morning, she's been on this journey a lot longer than I have or many of us have, and she's a faithful guide. And I just want to say this morning that her experience is important, that her knowledge is needed, that her perspective is welcomed. Some things you may hear may be new, or they may be different from what you've heard or, or even agree with, or they may be challenging. But this is where we come into that humble posture of Micah 6.8, to walk humbly and love mercy so we can act justly. And so we just want to say this morning that Lisa, we love you. We welcome you. Uh, we welcome your perspective and we say that it is valid. And uh, my role is simple today. I just get to set up your uh, expertise to hear from you. I want to turn it over to you and just say I love you and welcome your voice with us this morning. Good morning, Nava. Uh, the topic of my talk this morning is in its broadest sense about prejudice, which is unfair treatment of a person or a group because of race, sex, economic status, and the list goes on. And prejudice is against the ethos of the kingdom of God. Prejudice is against the heart of God. Prejudice in scripture is often labeled as partiality, and partiality is always labeled as a sin. Right now, God is shining a light on the prejudice of racism. It's an issue that touches many nations, and touches almost every arena of society in this one. But no sector of society is so unaware of its presence as the church itself. And while this is not acceptable, it is understandable. You see, most whites, especially Christians younger than 60, were taught that racism is, is largely an individual act of intentional meanness. But this definition it narrows, it's so narrow that it excludes how racism can be present without intentional mean intent, how racism can be an unconscious bias, how it can be embedded in culture, can be in past and present institutions, systems, and policies conferring dominance or benefit on whites while disadvantaging non-whites. It's uh, two terms that you'll hear. One is systemic racism and the other one is unconscious bias, and those two I want you to just have a working definition of 
Systemic racism doesn't mean lots of racist people in the system. It means that even if there were zero racists present, the system would still disproportionately harm people of certain races. An unconscious bias or implicit bias means that you're not aware of the stereotypes and attributes and subsequent judgments that you make that affect if and how you engage with non-white a non-white person or a non-white people group. So let's move through history and then we'll land on experience. You know, the early history of racism in this nation was conscious bias. That means they were intentionally prejudiced and discriminatory. discriminatory. Other ethnic groups would experience slavery by American hands for sure. But Africans or Blacks were uniquely singled out. From the beginning of the African slave trade, Blacks were considered property rather than persons. Blacks were deemed less than fully human as having smaller brains and little capacity for self-improvement. They were relabeled as subhuman by the scientific community, thus not qualifying for the inalienable rights the Constitution spoke of, nor recipients of the second commandment in the gospel. The gospel itself was used to keep Blacks subservient and compliant, and doctrine was imposed on them stating that as a result of God's curse, they needed to accept their fate as lifelong slaves by the will of God. In history, it was the abolitionist movement that brought the conversation about slavery itself into the wider sacred and secular forums. While helping enslaved people escape from the North, abolitionists helped spark intense public debate about the inefficiency and evils of slavery, which provoked people of good conscience and people of faith to pursue and push for the end of slavery in the political arena. Well, this ultimately led to a civil war, as those in the Southern Confederate states were not inclined to end slavery and accept the economic loss. As the Union armies advanced through Confeder the Confederacy, thousands of slaves were freed every single day until, until nearly all of them, which is about 3.9 million, were freed by July 1865. But here's the challenge, that once they were freed, they were freed without education, without money, without belongings, without voting rights, most without property. Some simply starved. Crop failure busted many fortunate enough to, to be able to lease a portion of land and even more a significant number of blacks ended up back in servitude. Through unjust vagrancy laws, they were incarcerated and became leased convicts and actually treated worse than slaves because the plantation owners had, didn't have a vested interest in their long life. Or by poverty, uh, the Blacks just returned to the plantation in servitude as barely paid workers. And those who survived all of this still face rejection by large segments of society, brutality, lynching, violence by militia, and little protection from unjust policies. And decades after the war, racism still persisted. It just took on different language. Language changed from white superiority to race incompatibility, which led to systemic segregation or something called the Jim Crow laws, which said um, that we're separate, but we're equal. We're equal, but we have to say separate. And let me tell you, separate but equal was anything but. As the government 
educational banking, housing, civic resources report into white segments of the city and society and largely withheld from blacks. And although Jim Crow ended in 1964, redlining took its place. Redlining is when developers and banks drew a pen around the neighborhood and said they're not gonna lend into it. They're gonna hike, hike up interest rates in those neighborhoods, hike up rents in those neighborhoods, and, um, and predominantly give the best lending rates to those in white neighborhoods. Highways were built right in the middle between black and white neighborhoods to, to um, mimic the divide Unfair housing practices were outlawed in 1968, but the truth is they were still vigorously happening throughout the 70s and the 80s, and its effects are still, they're still felt today. But enough about history. Let's switch gears and do, do a little experiment to help you understand this issue. I know you guys are watching me through Zoom, but I still want you to participate. Um, everybody who is watching me, if you are right-handed, Raise your hand. All the right-handed people, raise your hand. That's right, get them up. All right, you can put them down. You right-handed people, God bless you. The world was made by and for you. We live in a right-hand oriented world. The desk and schools are oriented for right-handed people. We pledge an oath with right hands. Our cars and our guns and our notebooks are oriented to right-handed people. Our refrigerators, our appliances, they open to the right. We shake hands right-handed. The sports equipment is majority made for right-handed sports players. Um, if you are a golf player, if you are left-handed, you have to special order left-handed golf clubs. If you wanna go and play, oh, say, a catch in the yard with your kid, you know, if I'm a left-handed person, I have to go to 10 different stores to find a left-handed mitt. And I may find one, usually I have to special order. And while you're at home doing the Norman Rockwell playing in your front yard with your kid, I'm driving around looking for a left-handed mitt. And you're saying, well, what's taking you so long? I got mine. <laughs> but you never had to be left-handed. You don't know the disadvantage of being left-handed in a right-handed culture. Does it mean you're prejudiced toward left-handed? Not necessarily. But whether that's true or not doesn't take away the disadvantage. It's called right privilege. You have an unearned advantage that you grew up with that you never knew was an advantage. You have blind spots. And this is a good comparison when you hear the phrase white privilege. It means that you hold views and opinions, even about people of color, their condition, what's needed, that are wrong because you're unaware of how you earned, how your unearned advantage impacts others. You know, I was listening to something um, about T.D. Jakes. He, he was, he had some interaction with the people that make the iPhone, those enormous brainiacs that bring that convenience to our lives. And, and they had just finished making facial recognition platform. And once they had rolled it out, they realized that their facial recognition technology was not recognizing any black faces. This iPhone facial recognition was designed by whites and for whites not because they were racist motivated, but because it just didn't occur to them that if it worked for whites, it would not necessarily automatically include working for blacks. How do we get a system that's not designed for black people to accommodate black people? That's a great question to ask. 
whether intentionally or unintentionally built to our disadvantage, the disadvantage still exists. When we hear the phrase white privilege, don't receive it as an accusation of racism, but as an identification of societal bias. You know, Blacks, um, we live in a different reality than you do, just like left-handed people live in a different reality than right-handed people. Most Blacks I know are constantly vigilant. When we leave our front door, we are constantly vigilant. Regarding police stops, for you, it's an inconvenience. For us, it's potentially lethal. Regarding statues, you see history. We see monuments to slave owners. Regarding Confederate flags, we see history of slavery and rape and brutality and racism and KKK and lynchings and the like. When we walk in a room full of whites or, or in an all white work environment, we're constantly adjusting our behavior and our language not to trip implicit bias or unconscious bias responses from whites. We deal with the daily effects of systemic racism, wealth gap, employment racism, banking and housing discrimination, policing issues, the unfair bail system, system sentencing and incarceration, incarceration bias, societal microaggressions, and a hundred Karens that cross our path every single month. My friends have changed their names to more white sounding names to get more job interviews because when their parents gave them more African sounding names, it was very difficult for them to even get interviews, even though they held uh, PhDs and high college degrees and high experience. Me, I'm followed by the police when I move about in wealthy parts of town. I'm followed by security guards when I move about in wealthy shops and boutiques and malls on the high end and high scale parts of town. When I travel, I have to ask where I'm going, is it safe for Blacks? Um, we, as African Americans, you may not be, but we're aware that there's an uptick in lynchings all across the nations. When my husband and I decided that we wanted to live together for the rest of our lives, when he went to tell his parents, who are also followers of Christ, they're some of the nicest people that you ever want to meet. I mean, just the sweetest two people I have ever met. And yet at the same time, when he told them that he was going to marry a, a black woman, they immediately reached for their Bible to find verses against it. My father, when he understood that I was going to marry a white person because of the racism that he grew up in, the brutality that he had to face, his response was to disown me. And we never spoke after I gave him the news. We never spoke, not even at my mother's funeral. Almost all the Blacks that I know, and that's through my growing up to now, we all carry our own history of, of a consistent, wide, and varied, and vast amount of stories about encountering racism in big, medium, and small ways throughout the course of our lifetimes. The stories are so vast and so numerous that if they were to be gathered, they would convince almost everyone that racism exists. But what hurts the most is that there are those who deny racism exists, who label our stories unreliable or lies or exaggeration, which is unfortunate because unless there is an acknowledgement of a thing, it makes it very difficult to deal with the thing. 
So racism has been ingrained in the nation since its inception. And although laws have changed and the language has changed and we've made such progress, it is still prevalent and it still reacts, it still shows up as a disadvantage and even at times a harm to people of color. And so I want to wind down with this. Um, first, it's really important that we acknowledge our differences, that the goal isn't to not see color, but rather acknowledge our differences and value them and celebrate them and discern how these differences can strengthen one another. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about how we, uh, we are strengthened and we make increase of ourselves by being fitly joined together. And when we do that in a predominantly homogenized way, we limit ourselves. We, uh, we are detached from a variety of strength and resource that can only come through diversity. And as it relates to this talk, interaction and relationship with people of color. I think one of the best routes to become um, anti-racist or an abolitionist or, or to become more, um, more open to diversity in your own lives is to intentionally make space for people of color in your own relational lives, to question the stories that you tell yourself about people of color, to pray that God would open your heart and open your eyes to who he's pointing out and directing to be a part of your relational life. This is, it's a funny thing. There are, there are two things that I want to encourage you guys to pray for as a result of, of this talk. And one is to pray for the victim and pray for the villain. That is pray for those who are oppressed by racism and pray for those who are intentional oppressors. That means they're, they're intentionally racist. They, they really do believe in white supremacy. They really do believe that, that African-Americans and people of color are less deserve, and deserve less. Um, to pray for the intentional oppressors. You know, Jesus, he's, he's a funny, funny one. He's not like the superheroes in the American comic books. When he comes on a scene, he doesn't just come to protect the victim. He also comes to serve the villain. And so in our prayers around this issue, we pray for both the victim and the villain, for both those who are oppressed and those who are doing the oppressors. Um, and finally, it's important that you pray for yourselves, that you are consistently inviting God to open your heart and open your eyes to ways that you might be practicing unintentional unfairness, prejudice, partiality, that God would show you how to act in ways that lead to racial reconciliation and help heal the racial trauma that people of color all around you are experiencing. So thank you, Nava, for permitting me to have a brief talk about this, to intro into this long journey that your leaders have set you on. I have extraordinary hope that you will rise to the challenges that are put before you and that you will indeed become a people of abolitionist movement, a people that are without partiality, without prejudice. In other words, the body of Christ. Thank you. Wow. Lisa, you've given us so much to think about. And uh, man, my heart is actually deeply touched hearing your story again. Would you close and just pray for us out of your heart 
as we go on this uh, journey further and consider the treasures you've brought to us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. I lift up the words that will result in your responding to the community that is called Nava. I ask for you to give them courage and boldness to continue on this adventure of learning about racism and reconciliation and racial justice and what equity means in the kingdom of God. I pray that you would give them the grace to take a look at their own issues and how racism and prejudice and partiality may sometimes play a role in their own lives. That you would give them the grace to stare it in the face and surrender it to you every time and ask for your heart in return. I pray that ultimately that the community in mass would become a hub of racial justice, a sanctuary, a place where people of color can find a voice and a home and can find, can find support and help and those who will champion the cause of equity in these things. And finally, Father, I pray that you would bless Nava to shine like a city on a hill as it undertakes to be renovated by your own spirit in this area of racial reconciliation and racial healing. May it be so in the name of Jesus. Amen.